David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he let stone cutters, and he set stone cutters to prepare to prepare dress stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon my son is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparations for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you're careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it, timber and stone, too, I have provided. To these you must add, you have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is it is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into, the house, into a house built. For the name of the Lord. Let's pray. God of heaven, once more we come to you utterly dependent on your spirit to work. We want to understand what you intend to tell us in this passage. Help us then to see it. And to see it, Father, as you intended us to see it for this day. You have said you have written these things for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. You've written these things for us upon whom Jesus has come. And you've written these things for our instruction, that we may be taught and rebuked, um, convicted and trained in righteousness. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word in this fashion. Thank you now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, it's a somber scene. The king summons his son in order to give him instructions. And his life will soon end, and he knows it. He knows his life is coming to an end. He summons his son. This is an important meeting. He must instruct his son in the most important of issues, and that is the building of the temple of God. And so we find ourselves then in the 22nd chapter of First Chronicles. In our history of God's people, we come to the final years of the reign of the greatest of kings by the name of David. Coming to the end of his reign is like coming over the top of the hill, and, and as you go down that hill, you're running faster and faster and faster. And as we're coming down on the other side of the hill, it seems like David's end is approaching faster and faster and faster. And so there's a sense of urgency in what we read in this text. It's, it's an urgent call to his son Solomon in order to help him. He can't spare any time or energy um, when it comes to gathering all the materials for the temple in order to build it. David is just expending himself just to get everything together so that Solomon can get about the business of building the temple of God. Now again, the temple occupies a central place in the history of First and Second Chronicles. I hope you've been encouraged to just keep on reading in these books, and in these two books. Because as you read, you keep seeing the same thing. The temple is the point of reference for Israel's knowledge of God. The temple was a symbol both of God's holiness and of God's grace. It represented God's earthly dwelling place. And the temple dominates the history of his people in these books. Our writer wants us to get the importance of this temple. Now remember, he's writing to a people who built, rebuilt the temple in a small and they're sad about the fact that it's not as glorious as the first, but he is trying to get us to understand the importance that the temple had and what they need to be looking for. Now, up to this point, we've seen David come to the throne with the intention of bringing God's people to a central location for worship. If you read the books, you see that the, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant is in, is in Shiloh, the, the people tend to be worshiping God at different places against what God commanded. He said, you come to the tabernacle. But you see then that, that we're coming to the place where, where the law had said, when there's peace, you've got to have a central location for worship. And so that's what's transpiring here. The story of how God accomplished the building of his temple, that central place that he always intended for his people uh, to worship at. And so we see this thus far that David has transported the ark to Jerusalem, the covenant with the, uh, the ark of the covenant, the symbol of God's presence, the place where they need to worship. He then determines to build the temple for the ark, but God reveals to him his son is going to build the temple. He won't. And instead of David building a house, for God, God's going to build a house for him, a great house. And with regard to the temple of God, he's going to serve a different role, the role of preparing for it. So David prepares by bringing peace, conquering all the enemies of God's people so that the temple can be located. He prepares all the accumulating materials, accumulates all these materials for building it. And as we saw last week, through David's sin... God identifies the place where the temple will now be built. But notice who builds the temple. It's David's son, Solomon, who will now take on the task of building the house of God. But 
as you read this chapter, it becomes evident what this temple is about. Solomon is young and inexperienced. He needs some instructions from his father. In that instruction, he begins to get a glimpse of the importance of this temple and of the task in building it. In fact, this chapter reveals to us three important truths concerning this place of worship. First of all, you need to understand the character of God's temple. You need to understand the character of God's temple. You need to understand the character of God's temple builder. And you need to understand what it means to build God's temple. Those are the three things that the chronicler wants us to get. And that God, as he oversees the writing of this, wants us to get in the day in which we live. Okay, so first of all, verses 2 through 5. Understand the character of the temple. All right? Verses 2 through 5. David David assembled all... Nope, I knew that didn't sound right. There we go. David commanded um, to gather together the resident aliens who are in the land of of Israel, and he set set stone cutters to prepare dress stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails of the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon my son is young and experienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. David begins in earnest to throw himself into the preparations for building this temple. And even though Solomon's going to build it, he's young and inexperienced. And David needs to want, thinks there's a necessity of getting things together. And because of that inexperience, he must, exact, he must know what the temple is to be. So David's gathering all these things, and then he tells Solomon um, what it is to be. Now, I want you to notice with me that in building of the temple requires people fulfilling different roles. Requires people fulfilling different roles. These are roles that God assigns. Now, when I was in high school, I, uh, I played part of the year in the band. I didn't play in the marching band because I was on the football team. So I played in the band the rest of the year. And I played trumpet. And in, in our band, you had to compete for first chair and second chair and all that sort of thing. Some of you remember that. Well, Ron Franks beat me for first chair. Now, to be honest, Ron Franks was a bando. Now, you all know what a bando is, don't you? A bando is the, the, the kids who are absolutely devoted to the band, right? They're, they're in the band. That's their identity. Ron was one of those guys. He was a bando. Nevertheless, I didn't like second chair. <laughs> and I would challenge him for that. Um, yeah, Ron was better, I guess. But the point is, that was my role. My role was second chair, not first chair. Now, God gave David the role of second chair in building the temple. He had a supporting role. He was not the main player. All right? He was not the main player. But he threw himself completely into the task of preparing for the building of the temple. He was going to be the best second chair in the kingdom. Right? 
if that's what his role was, he was going to do it to the best of his ability. He was going to do his best to make Solomon look good. He was going to do his best to make sure Solomon had everything that he needed. Right? When we look at the text here, you see... By the way, you know, when it talks about he got um, 100,000 talents of gold together, a talent is about 75 pounds. So if my math is right, it's 750,000 pounds of gold. Okay? <laughs> I know, you're, you're thinking, yeah, I wish I had some of that. But anyway... And he got how many? A million. A million talents of silver. And I can't do the math in my head right now, but you do it. 75, 75 million, right? 75 million pounds of silver. Thank you, Maddie. Maddie's our math teacher. So 75 million pounds. I mean, and then, you know, enough bronze. Well, we're just not even going to count that. So David is getting all this stuff together. I mean, he is really going full bore on this second chair business. He knows he's not going to build it, but he is expending himself, doing everything he can in order to get everything ready. Um, so, I mean, just one thing to ask yourself, how are you doing at playing second chair when you're not the main player? How do you do at that? Do you give it your all? Too many times we think, unless I'm the main player, well, it doesn't require much of me. But God says, whatever role I've assigned you, you give yourself to that. By the grace of God, you give yourself to that role. Now, when it comes to understanding the character of the temple, Solomon must understand that the temple should, should, um, the temple should reflect the glory of God himself. And this is why David has devoted himself to this sort of a task. Notice what he says in verse 5. Um, For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house is to be built for the Lord. The house that is to be built for the Lord must be, must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will remember, I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. What's the issue here? The fame and majesty and splendor of God has to be reflected in the temple. And this is why David has given himself to this task. Because he knows that the temple has to be a reflection of the magnificence and the glory of God. The prophet Habakkuk declared, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 145 said, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. This remains the same today. God's temple today should reflect the magnificence, the fame, and the splendor of God. Now, please, don't fall into the mistake of saying, well, I don't know if this building actually is that magnificent. Now, I'm not making any comment on the building here. I'm just saying, you might not say, you know, I don't see any gold trim here. And as for silver, uh, well, the mistake there is to equate this building with the temple of God, right? What is the temple of God? Well, where is this pointing, first of all? It, first of all, is pointing 
to the ultimate temple, who is Jesus. Right? It is Jesus. The temple is reflecting, is speaking ahead of time, is pointing to the meeting place between God and man, which is no longer a central location, but a person. The person of Jesus Christ. And what does Hebrews say about Jesus? It says he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The temple in all its magnificent intended to reflect the glory and the majesty of God has nothing compared to Jesus who reflects the glory of God beyond anything that anyone could ever do. It's just a shadow, this this gold gilded, silver furnished unbelievable temple is nothing compared to Jesus but it points to the fact that that the final temple must must represent the being of God in glory but you know what the temple is not just Jesus remember what we said many many weeks ago the Bible says that Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament Jesus himself said that in Matthew 5 I'm not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law and the prophets, which is shorthand for the entire Old Testament. In Luke 24, he, said, he took the disciples and took them through the whole Old Testament and said, see, it's talking about me. So Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament. All the pictures, all the types, everything that's there is found fulfillment in Jesus. And so remember, I, if, if I had a, I could have given you a, a PowerPoint on that maybe. You'll just, you just have to go old school with me. Here's the Old Testament. Comes all the way down to one person. That's Jesus. It's all fulfilled in him. And then united to Jesus is our we. That's us. Comes out like that. And so we too, connected to Jesus, the things that are true about Jesus can be true of us. Like, if Jesus is the temple, now what's the temple? The temple is the church of God. The people of God, not the building. But the people, turn to Ephesians 2. Let's take a look at this. Ephesians 2. I am... I'm of the opinion, so you can take what it's worth. I'm of the opinion that the New Testament writers were so soaked in what I just said to you, fulfillment in Jesus coming out and fulfillment in us, that it just, to me, it just keeps coming through all the way through the New Testament. For example, here's what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Okay, now remember, what's the point he's making? The point he's making is that the two peoples of the world, the Gentiles and the Jews, have now become one. They're one new people, one new man, if you will. And so he concludes that by saying in verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's talking about you collectively, not you individually here. You collectively are the temple of God. You're the dwelling place of God. And so it is that those related to Jesus become the temple. And like the temple of old, this congregation is the dwelling place of God. And so this congregation 
should be the great magnificence and fame and splendor inside of all the nations. That's what God intends for his people to be. People of great splendor, they, they reflect the holiness of God. They reflect the grace of God. They reflect, reflect the majesty of God. And when we come to the end of time, you see that that's what God always intended. If you look at Revelation chapter 21. Now again, um, I haven't preached through Revelation with you. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm going to say this after coming through the whole book of Revelation that the new Jerusalem that descends is the church. This is the church because throughout the New Testament, that's what we're called. And so it says in verse 21, chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now jump over to verses 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God as its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. In other words, God's intention is that whenever the culmination of all things, his people are going to have the glorious radiance like precious jewels. All right? Now, you see what this means? We live for the purpose of spreading the fame of our God. John Piper has once said, we have, a miss- we have missions because the world lacks worshipers. <laughs> right? We live to spread the fame of our God abroad. We live to show the fame of God in His grace, in Jesus, and draw people to Him. And so you have to understand the character of the temple of God. It must reflect the glory and splendor of its God then and today. All right, so what's the next thing you want us to understand? You need to understand the character of God's temple builder. Verses 6 through 16. All right? The character of God's temple builder. Then he called Solomon, called for Solomon his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days." He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing. For For there is much of it. For there is much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. To those you must add 
To those you must add, you have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. All right, understand the character of God's temple builder. Now, David formally appoints, appoints here Solomon to build the temple. And David summons Solomon and formally charges him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. But what does the builder What must he be like? He tells him what he must be like. He tells him what's required of him. Right? The temple builder must be a man of peace. That's the first thing. The temple builder must be a man of peace. David could not build the temple because he had shed much blood. Now typically people look at this passage and say that God forbade David because he was a warrior and he had killed people. Right? Is that the reason why he can't? No, that's not exactly right because if you survey and I've got in my notes we could go back and look at a ton of passage but what it keeps saying is God gave David victory David conquered because of God God provided the warriors God did all of this okay and when David went out to fight he fought as the Lord's anointed one To deliver God's people from the oppression of their enemies. David was doing nothing more than accomplishing what God had said, which was, go and conquer the land. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but when they stood on the bank 400 years earlier, when they stood on the banks of the Jordan, right, and they went across to conquer the land, and and you read Joshua, they didn't conquer the land entirely. They got a bit more under Saul, the great warrior. Now David has accomplished what they were supposed to do. And has conquered all the land. Okay? All the land. So David has conquered the land in obedience to God. And it was because of David's military achievements that Solomon was able to enjoy peace. So what is the problem? It isn't that Solomon is ethically superior to David because he wasn't a warrior. It's not so much an ethical unfitness, but quite possibly something like ceremonial uncleanness. What do I mean? Well, here's an example. Here's just an example. Look back at Leviticus 22. Leviticus 22. Now, this is just an example. It's not what's actually happened, but it's an example of something called ceremonial uncleanness. Leviticus 22, verse 4. None of the offspring of Aaron, who has a leprous disease or a discharge, may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has had an emission of semen, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean, or a person from which he may take uncleanness, wherever his uncleanness may be. The person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. All right, now, what law have they broken? to be called unclean. I mean, what law have they transgressed? None. They haven't transgressed any law. Um, it, none of these things make, make a man ethnically, repu- uh, ethically repugnant. Right? 
Oh, you've, you've touched a dead animal. Let's not have anything to do with that guy anymore. He's not ethically repugnant. He's just ceremonially unclean. Now, we're all used to the idea of medical instruments being sterile, right? We're all used to that. Um, if they touch anything, they can't be used in surgery. They can't be used. Now, it's not because those instruments have done something wrong. It's that they're not fit for surgical use. And the idea here, I think, is that, that David um, is not morally repugnant because he's been a warrior. It's because he's not fitted to build the temple. He's not the guy. It's got to be a man of peace. He's not, he's not fit for building the temple. Fit, again, not meaning something ethical. But he's just not the right thing. He, God's not going to use him. All right? However, Solomon will be a man of peace and rest. Now, if you look at Solomon, you, you know what the Hebrew word for, for peace is, right? I think everybody here knows that. I'm not being a, a, a know-it-all here when I say this. You all know the Hebrew word for peace. It's shalom, right? Solomon's name in Hebrew is shalomo, which is uh, peace. That's his name. That's the name that was given him. His name is peace. And now the emphasis is on the rest that peace will bring. Okay? The emphasis now is on the rest that the peace will bring. Look over again at Deuteronomy 12. We've been here in the past. But let's go back there again. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit... And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I commanded, all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you shall present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. All right, so the Lord said in the law, when you finally have peace, that's when I'm going to give you a central place of worship. And that's what's happened here. Solomon's peaceful upbringing after the security of the kingdom has have established him and fitted him to build the temple. Where is the man of peace building the temple now? Where is the man of peace building the temple now? We all know the answer to that. It's Jesus who is our peace, right? And it's fascinating to me. Again, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Look at the character of this king, this Messiah, this Savior. Matthew 12. Um, Matthew 12. Beginning in verse... um, 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 42. 
Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in, the, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Here is the picture of a gentle, peaceful, quiet king. All right? He's not the kind that crushes people. He's not the kind. He doesn't shout in the streets. Um, uh, what's that mean? It means he's not going to lead this great movement that sweeps through the streets like Hitler's brown shirts going through the streets and beating people up and bringing everybody uh, into a certain allegiance to Nazism, right? It's not like that at all. That's not the way he's going to operate. He's a peaceful, peaceful king. All right? The temple builder must be a man of covenant faithfulness is what David says in Second in 1 Chronicles 22. He says, you, you have to obey the covenant that we made with God. But we're going to see that Solomon made a good beginning, or if you know the story of Solomon, he made a good beginning, but after a while he went off the rails. I think he came back, as the book of Ecclesiastes testifies, but he went off the rails. He did not remain faithful as he should have. But what do we know about Jesus? He's one who was faithful to all the covenant stipulations, and his construction of God's temple will not fall short. Right? That's true of Jesus. Now, David doesn't just address Solomon. He also addresses the elders, the leadership bunch of Israel. And here you see you need to understand what it means to build God's temple. Verses 17 through 19. What does it mean to build God's temple? David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying... Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. All right? They have to devote themselves to seeking the Lord their God with their heart and their soul. You have to seek God. And how is that devotion expressed? You do it by building the temple. You do it by building the temple. What does it mean to build the temple? It means to seek God. It means to, it means to seek Him. It means to respond to His grace by doing that. And the ark, the symbol of God's presence, could then be brought to the temple, and then they could seek God properly. Now, why was Saul judged? You remember? Because he didn't seek the Lord. Do you remember what it means to seek the Lord? It means to worship him. Seeking his face and finding his favor as you come in, in faith because of grace. Now, again, that should remind you of Jesus. Right? What, is, what, is, what does God have to say to us then? What is he saying to us now? Well, where do you see the grace of God clearly exhibited? You see it in the temple. Who's the temple? Jesus. 
By the way, you see the holiness and grace of God expressed in the temple. You see it in Jesus. There it is. It's, it's, we need to be reminded of the grace of God in Jesus. There we go for his grace. There we go for his favor. How should you respond to that grace? By seeking God in terms of his temple. Look, this congregation is the temple of God. It's under construction by Jesus, our peace. And God expects you to devote yourself to seeking him in the midst of his people. Right? Can I say this? We have a tendency to think that certain parts of the Old Testament, you know, a lot of it just doesn't count for us. But I would say to you that God hasn't changed. God has not changed. He still expects a temple. He still expects people to worship in a temple. He does. He still expects you to offer sacrifices. Hebrews 13, what? Sacrifices of praise and sacrifices of helping people. See, we still have sacrifices. We still have a temple. We have a priest. A high priest, right? Hebrews talks all about that. All that is still the same, except it's different because of Jesus, right? So if we're going to seek God in the temple, what do we do? We seek God with his people. The people are the temple. I am convinced of this, that you don't seek God alone. In fact, you don't seek God alone while you're here, right? It's not like this place is filled with people seeking God alone. We seek God together, right? We ought to be together seeking God. Are you habitually seeking God with his people because of his grace in Jesus? Right? That's what we need to be doing. I am convinced of that. You know, 38 years as a pastor, I have learned um, you're at a vantage point, I think, where you, you see things, I think, a little bit clearer, but not differently. And I have become absolutely convinced of the importance of this new temple called the church. And when they're seeking God in the temple, it still is the same. We ought to seek God together in the temple. I am amazed at the difference that that makes. The absolute unbelievable difference that that makes. We're not walking to glory alone. We're walking to glory together. And that's why it's so important. And so here he's telling these elders you, you've got to build this temple. This is where you seek God. That's saying that's still true today. We seek God through Jesus together. So, as the temple of God in these last days, we have to reflect the glorious majesty of God by our lives. By our lives together, we reflect the majesty of God. We need to reflect the majesty of God to the community in which we're placed. All right? In the community where this church is, you need to reflect the majesty and the glory of God by your lives and how you live together and how you help one another, how you love one another. All those things show the glory of God. And we have to look to Jesus, the son of David, who builds his temple as the only one qualified to do it. It's Jesus who builds it, right? He uses us for sure, but he's the one who builds it. And we, as his temple, need to seek God together and so God gives us these instructions in this ancient book this is who we are this is what we do as he always intended 
as he always has done. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for an ancient book that points us to Jesus. Thank you for the shadows that highlight the picture. Help us, Father, to be faithful to what you've called us to do in this text. Help us to look more and more to Jesus as we walk together, seeking to show the majesty and the glory of God as a congregation to those around us. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.